Welcome back to the present stage conversations with theater writers. My name is Dan Rubens, and I'm a theater critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. And my guest today is Jeremy Tiang, the playwright of Salesman Jusse, which tells the story of Arthur Miller's 1983 visit to Beijing, where he made his directorial debut with a Chinese language version of Death of a Salesman. When I heard about this play, and the story it's telling, I knew I wanted to speak to Jeremy Tiang, and I hope that you'll find this conversation as fascinating as I did. It's a play that really deals with what it means to translate culture and language both on stage and off. It's a play that really engages with animating the archive in really interesting, unusual ways. And it's a play that also seeks to restore to the limelight the stories of individuals who played significant roles in cultural or theatrical history who may have been forgotten. And I hope you'll find this conversation a lot of fun. And if you're interested in checking out the play, it's running at the Connolly Theater. It's a co-production of Yancey Repertory Company and Gung Ho Projects, and it's running through October 28th. Jeremy Tiang, welcome to the present stage. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you about the title of this play, which translates fully into English as Death of a Salesman, with salesman written in English and Death of in Mandarin. Uh, so I'm curious, why did you decide for your play to share a title and also not quite share a title with Miller's play itself? Well, first of all, it felt right for a bilingual play to have a bilingual title. So the play was always going to have a title that was half English and half Chinese. And because it builds on Miller's Death of a Salesman, it very much draws from the real life event of the 1983 production of Death of a Salesman in Beijing. It felt like an homage to call it Death of a Salesman, but with a linguistic twist which is very what very much what happens in the play, where the play that gets staged in Beijing both is and isn't death of a salesman. Because what happens to a beloved American classic when you take it out of its context and original language? And that's the question that I hope we start asking right from the title. And I think that sort of the way that you just sort of told that one of those core questions of the play, I think, is sort of what one of the, the, the questions that sort of jumped out to me as making this historical event so sort of ripe for dramatization. I sort of unusually reached out immediately to the press rep for the show as soon as I heard about it and said, I need I need to talk about this uh, show on the, with the playwright on my podcast because it just felt like um, sort of a, a dramatic necessity when you hear about the story to to sort of see it on stage. So I'm curious for you, what where did you find sort of, um, like what was the inspiration to feel like this play has this this event has to be a play. Um, this is something that I need to sort of sink my teeth into and and do a lot of research. Um, sort of what what led you to take on sort of this entire undertaking. Well, the impetus for this actually came from the director, Michael Liebenloft. Um, in 2017, he had a fellowship at the 14th Street Y through Lava, and he convened a group of people, including me, to talk about a theatrical event 
that turned out to be this production. Um, I was already aware that this collaboration had happened. I'd read about, I'd read Salesmen in Beijing in college and it had always been one of those things that I had thought, oh, maybe someday. Um, but it wasn't till Michael said, let's actually do this, that I thought, oh, okay, let, let's get deeper into this. And so together we started digging and the more we explored the topic, the more we explored the historical events, the more we uncovered, um, the more it felt like this was absolutely a story that needed to be told right now. And also one that chimed very much with both our um, preoccupations. Michael's a director who got his MFA in Shanghai. He's American, he got his MFA in Shanghai and has directed a lot in China. And I'm from Singapore and work between English and Chinese. I'm also a translator. So for both of us, what Arthur Miller did in 1983 in going to Beijing and what the Beijing People's Art Theatre did in welcoming this figure from the American theatre, a world that they didn't fully understand, being willing to take this leap into the unknown and to see what could happen when you step outside your comfort zone. That felt like something both of us had done a lot in our careers. And so the play became a way for us to both explore questions that have been preoccupying us, but also to pull together people who had been doing similar work. And indeed, a lot of the actors involved, both currently and in workshops along the way, a lot of the other collaborators we've worked with, a lot of the people we've been able to interview, all of them have not worked in just one area, but moved between cultures and communities and languages. And I think that comes across in seeing the play, which I'll mention uh, 12 hours ago, I was half halfway through the uh, audience experience. So I'm still sort of very freshly processing and, and developing questions. Um, but I think uh, sort of one of the things that makes the play feel uh, complex and and meaty is that sense that you're telling a very specific story that's very rooted in historical events and archive, but also you're using this uh, very specific historical moment to address these larger experiences and questions. So I'm curious, as a playwright, how you approach sort of balancing those two needs to tell a compelling, often very funny story, but also have a lot more happening sort of under the surface at the same time. But I, I think that's always the case. I mean, a play isn't a museum display. I don't think you're ever just telling a historical event if that's your subject matter. It's always about what conversation is this moment in history having with our moment right now. And I drew a lot of inspiration from the 1983 production. When the Beijing People's Art Theatre did Death of a Salesman in 1983, it wasn't, let's do this American play from 1949 and preserve it as a kind of period piece. They very much engaged with it as a current play that was in conversation with what was happening in China at the time, with their own society. And now 40 years on, we're not saying let's just present this Death of a Salesman production four decades ago as something that happened and has nothing to do with us. 
we're saying, does it not still have resonances with our world today? How would a collaboration of this nature be different now? What has changed along the way? What, what does that tell us? What can we learn from this moment? And I think bringing it all home is the fact that the rehearsal interpreter from 1983, Shen Huihui, is um, still with us and, in fact, was willing to be interviewed extensively for this play. So I've been to see her twice um, in Vancouver, um, once on my own and once with Michael, and found out a lot from her about what the process was like from someone who was in the room and from someone who still feels it as a fresh event for her also it's something that changed the course of her life it's still something she thinks of a lot it's still something that um feels like it isn't over yet so i wanted to get that sense in the play that yes it happened 40 years ago but the reverberations can still be felt now um so let's keep them alive you referred um, just now to Shen Huihui, who's really the narrator and protagonist of the play. What's interesting is you have sort of as archival material, Miller's memoir about the experience that you referred to. You also have the translator and, and star Ying's memoir as well. Um, and you chose a third perspective to really be the center of the story you're telling. Can you talk more about sort of at what point in the process Shen Huihui emerged as the protagonist? and um, how much that intersected with actually getting to know her in real life and um, sort of how that role evolved. Uh, you're right in that the initial drafts of the play were absolutely about Arthur Miller and Ing Rochung, the gigantic figures at the heart of this, um, and the two men who arguably made this happen. Without them, it wouldn't have been possible. But as a playwright, you're always asking, who came out of this the most changed who was the most different at the end of the story? And that is unquestionably Shen Huihui. Um, her life was set on a different course as a result of her collaboration. If Arthur Miller had never gone to Beijing, if Ying Ruocheng had never worked with Arthur Miller, they would still have had similar lives. They would still have been a famous playwright on one hand and a famous actor-translator on the other. Um, but Shen Huihui... <clears throat> might never have come to the US, might never have worked in theatre, might never have done all the things she did, ended up doing, um, translating Susan Sontag's book without this experience. Um, or she might have, we don't know, but it felt like this was a, an inflection point for her. And when we talked to her, um, the more time I spent with her, the more it felt like she was the one to put in the center of the show. And she was the one who would guide us through the journey. She was the one whose perspective I most wanted to foreground. Um, and I, I think that's still the most interesting way into it for me. I think when you're dealing with larger than life figures like Arthur Miller and Ying Ruocheng, they're already kind of known quantities. They're iconic figures. You, you come into the theatre with some sense of who they are. Um, maybe more Arthur Miller if you're American and more Ying Ruocheng if you're Chinese, but you have hopefully an awareness. But Shen Huihui, someone who's not a public figure um, and yet was in the room where it all happened, I, I think that's the point of view 
that um, I, I find most um, enthralling. And of course, as the interpreter for Miller in the room, she also was sort of at the, the center of sort of the act of translation, which is so much sort of thematically significant in what's happening on stage. So I'm curious sort of how you, what you learned from her about sort of how she perceives of that, that role in, in that room um, and sort of how you went about adapting her story into, into the onstage character in that sense. Well, as a translator myself, um, I drew a lot from my own experience and she became a container to put a lot of my feelings and questions about translation. To what extent do you become the voice of the author, of the person you're translating? Um, to what extent is your own voice in there? <clears throat> um, I, I trained as an actor and in drama school, I had a teacher who would always ask us, um, at emotional moments in plays. Um, when this character cries, um, is it the character's tears or is it your tears? And the correct answer is always your tears because the character isn't real. But in this case, you're dealing with real people. So when you say their words, are they their words or are they your words? Um, and so Shen Hui Hui tries her best to represent everything that is said in another language, and yet her own perspective creeps in. Um, and how could it not? Because she's using her own words to express someone else's, which is theatrically very exciting because that's all theatre, right? It's the gap between what is said and what is being unsaid, what is being thought, what is in the surface of the words. So here you have two people's voices in one, and both of them have their own subtext. And so each moment is really alive with these um, conflicting or conversing voices and ideas. And it's really electric when the translator brings something else on top of the original. So for Shen Hui Hui, it was a process of discovery for her. So even though she came in thinking, I'll be a neutral vessel, I will just transmit what is being asked of me, um, the words couldn't pass through her without changing her. And I think the joy for us is seeing how that happens. And that also brings up my first of many questions about the use of surtitles in the play. There are some very, some of my favorite moments in the play are when we're seeing uh, literal translations of what maybe Arthur Miller is saying, uh, or or what uh, Ying is saying, uh, projected, uh, and then we're hearing a slightly different translation from uh, Shen Weiwei on stage, uh, which sometimes have sort of comic differences between them, um, but sometimes are just sort of subtle uh, shifts between uh, sort of the literal text that we're receiving and also and then what we're hearing from her so i'm curious how you devise those moments and and sort of uh how how you sort of are able to draw audiences attention to those uh sort of slight distinctions because there are often sort of subtle moments of mistranslation or or shifts in translation happening throughout the play yeah, and, and I mean, translation is very difficult, well, on, on some kind of spectrum from difficult to impossible. 
And some of the things that Shen Huibo was being asked to translate, I don't know if they could be translated. Some of them she wouldn't translate. Um, sometimes she would translate something a little differently because she was being diplomatic, um, because she had never been to the US and didn't understand many aspects of American culture. So the gaps in translation become the gaps in understanding between her perspective and Arthur Miller's, between the Chinese and US perspectives at the time. Um, but also, I, I just enjoy the idea of transgressive translation. Um, sometimes you translate something a little differently on purpose, and you have a good reason for that. Um, if I'm trans, when when I myself translate a book that is comic, and I see an opportunity for a joke in English that didn't exist in the Chinese. I will insert it, checking with the author, of course, right. but, you know, just like, here's an opportunity. I'm not going to not put the joke in just because it doesn't exist in the original. I feel like this would happen here. And it's the same with Shen Hui Hui. I think you can see moments where she goes, oh, well, if Arthur Miller were Chinese, he would never be this rude. Let me tone things down for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and um, I think some of the my favorite moments are the ones that are language specific. So there's a moment where Shen Hui Hui is explaining the plot of Chao Yu's play Thunderstorm to the audience in English. And at that moment, the surtitle in Chinese just says, if you speak Chinese, you probably don't need this explanation. <laughs> Um, and that's something that only the Chinese speakers in the audience will get. And I love that there are these moments that just one language group or the other will, will right. receive. And that and one of the first thoughts I had as the play began was that the experience of being a monolingual English speaker or a monolingual Chinese speaker or a bilingual speaker in the audience would all be incredibly different experiences in terms of when you're literally when you're sort of look like looking up and down uh, to read the surtitles and also sort of and, and what moments are sort of uh, directed in, in, in different ways. Um, so it's sort of like parallel experiences happening um, within the audience. So I'm curious what that process of, of devising that was like, did you did you sort of go through the script thinking, if I only know English, what will my experience be? If I only know Chinese, what will my experience be? Um, yeah, I'm just, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, Michael and I, um, at certain points during this rehearsal process, have taken a step back and gone, okay, this is a very bilingual room. Let, let's like make sure we understand what this is like for people who only have one language. And even before that, um, when I was working on the script, I would from time to time try to forget the part of me that speaks Chinese or the part of me that speaks English and try to see it from that point of view. Um, so the first thing that happened was that um, I really wanted to make sure people who didn't speak English could still come to the play and have a good experience. Because I think often when you go to the theatre in the US, um, the non-English language is surtitled, but the English isn't. And I, I wanted from the beginning to surtitle both languages. So the English is surtitled in Chinese and a Chinese only speaker could come to this and fully experience the story. Um, but the, the only real way to know is to um, bring in people who don't speak the languages and see what their experience is like. Um, so we've had um, 
people sit in on various workshops and um, presentations and just like make sure we hear from them about what they did or didn't get and refine along the way, maybe where a little more scaffolding will be needed. Or maybe sometimes something isn't understood and I decide that's okay. You don't need to understand everything as long as that's enough of a pathway to guide you through. And there are moments where we get sort of surtitles in both Chinese and English sort of piling on top of each other if there are lots of characters talking at once to the point that they become illegible. And obviously those are moments where we might not, we don't, we can't follow the exact pattern of language if we only speak one language on stage. Um, and to me, those moments are sort of about like the limits of translation or at least the limits of sort of in the moment interpretation to uh, interpreting to to capture all the dynamics happening in a multilingual room. So um, yeah, they're, they're funny. <laughs> they're, it's, it's a funny meta theatrical moment, but it's also sort of gets to the heart, I think, of a lot of what you're doing in the play. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And I, I think the surtitles should replicate what's happening on stage. Um, and, and our projection designer, Cynthia, um, has done a brilliant job. There have been so many conversations about how would the surtitles represent this moment? You know, here's something that's happening on stage. What are we going to do about that? Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the way the um, titles of books and plays are represented in the surtitles use Chinese um, punctuation marks. They kind of have a triangular bracket around them. I um, mean, that's something we decided to do too mix the languages up a little more. Um, but, you know, I, I often am watching um, a, a TV show with, with captions on and something will be inaudible on screen, but the caption will tell me what is being said. So they contain yeah. information, right? I, I think we've all had that experience. And I thought, well, I don't want all these people on the stage to be talking on top of each other so we can't hear them, but we can read what they're saying. I thought the surtitle should replicate what our experience is. Um, so if it can't be heard, it can't be clearly surtitled. And I think you can sort of pick out words in the jumble on the screen, just as you can pick out words by listening to what's happening on stage. You also have an on-stage surtitle operator who's sort of a semi-character who interacts occasionally with Ms. Shen, um, but is sort of a silent figure there. I, I'm, wh why did you decide to have that sort of um, as, a, as a present figure on stage? Well, from the beginning, I wanted to make translation really visible. And I think the play itself does that. The play itself shows the friction that occurs when you move from one language to another. Whereas in, in um, the US, translation is often thought of as this mechanical process. It's something, you know, people think it's something an AI could do. It's something that happens frictionlessly. Um, and I wanted to foreground that friction. Um, and apart from doing it in the text itself, showing people struggling over word choices, showing how some things translate imperfectly, I thought, well, the audience is seeing these surtitles. And I've been to a place where the surtitles just appear. You understand what's happening. You don't think about it. Um, but if there's a surtitle operator right there on stage and you can see the person whose labor is making this happen, you can't ignore her. Um, and at a certain point, she leaves the stage and the surtitles stop 
and the actors have to take over the task of interpreting. Um, so it felt to me like someone is going to be doing that. There's going to be someone somewhere in the theatre who's pushing buttons to bring you these translations. So let's put that person front and centre. In the translation community, there's a lot of conversations around the invisibility of the translator, which is linked to our inability to negotiate for better working conditions, because if you are not seen, then you don't have the kind of clout that gives you bargaining power. Um, so there has been there have been successful campaigns on social media to get translators named in book reviews so that we don't pretend that Chekhov wrote in English. Um, we there have been campaigns to have translators named on the covers of books they translate. And in a similar way, I just wanted all of the translation processes in this play to be out there for the audience to see. Uh, at the end of Salesman in Beijing, or at least the excerpt that uh, appeared in Vanity Fair after uh, Miller returned from his trip, uh, he ends by saying, uh, we have met on the plane of imagination where it is indeed possible to share everything we have come to be. Do you feel like that's hyperbolic? Are you skeptical of sort of that summation of his experience? Or, or do you feel like that's reflective of the experience of the folks that you've talked to who were, were in that process? Um, every single person I talked to in this process had a different point of view. Um, and you can see this even in the published accounts in Miller's book and um, Ying Rocheng's book, they will sometimes recount the same event from very different perspectives. Um, no one could agree on how much Chinese Miller's wife Inga Morath spoke, for example. Miller thought she was near fluent. Other people said she just spoke a few words. Um, <laughs> so I don't think anyone um, fully comprehended everything. And I don't think anyone thought that this was a full, um, that there were no obstacles to this collaboration, except the people who could only see part of it, um, which admittedly was a lot of them. So I, I think Miller, maybe, from his limited perspective, felt that they had had a complete meeting of minds. But the only people who could fully grasp everything that was happening were Shen Huihui and Ying Ruocheng, the two people at the heart of this who were fully bilingual and could hear and understand everything that was happening. Miller's experience was very much filtered through these two figures. Everything he received from the Chinese side came through them. Um, and perhaps they made it seamless for him. So he had the magical experience of directing a show in a language he didn't speak and feeling that it had been possible, that it had been maybe even not easy, but successful without any loss along the way. Um, and I don't think he fully grasped the amount of effort it took on the part of everyone else particularly his translators, to give him that experience. And since we're we're speaking about Shen Huihui, I wanted to learn more about sort of what your experience of talking to her was like, um, and, and sort of the interview as well. Um, were they 
always receptive to the idea of telling the story on stage or being characters in the play and and how did um what what did that process of connecting with them and then uh having those conversations look like um well firstly the story's already out there um given that salesmen in beijing and ying ro chen's voices carry are published um and they name a lot of the people including shen hui hui um so it's not like anyone's involvement with secrets so sure. that kind of you know, was our starting point, was my starting point, um, what's already out there, and then what else is there to be uncovered. Um, so with, with Shen Hui Hui, um, I think our conversations with her kind of mirrored my own process in writing the play, where it started out being more about Ying Ruo Cheng and Arthur Miller, and um, at a certain, and, you know, to start with, it was a more streamlined cast. So I just had Ying Ruocheng doing a lot of the translation. But then more and more that felt wrong because there had been someone else in the room and I wanted to put her on stage. Um, and then I was able to make contact with her and speak to her. And the more she told me, the more it felt like actually there was a lot that wasn't in the known accounts. Um, and so I, st you know, I started saying to her, you're in the play, I hope that's okay. Um, we're using the story you told us, I hope that's all right. Um, and then this kind of snowballed into you are now the protagonist, <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Um, and she appears in a in the play in a way that I don't want to be more specific about because I think that moment is hopefully a surprise for the audience. Um, but I, it was very exciting when she agreed to do the thing she does. Um, and to be involved in a much deeper way, because um, I, it felt right that she should be a collaborator in this. She shouldn't just be someone whose story I took and turned into a play. Um, she should be more involved, and and now she is. Um, she's much more present in a way I hoped she would be. So it, it's something that feels right. It, it feels like her part in the process hasn't been fully honored. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think salesman in Beijing even gives her full name. I think she's just Mrs. Shen um, all the way through. So it it felt good to give her the space to tell her own story. I'm also curious to learn that we haven't talked yet about the casting of the play. Uh, all the actors are female and non-binary performers, and I'm Curious, who who play both male and female characters, sometimes both switching off roles. Um, at what point in the process did gender become part of the conception of what you wanted to to play with on stage, um, and how did that sort of come into being for this particular story? Um, we, we've had an all female and non binary cast from the very beginning. Um, and to start with, it was just a counter to how male-heavy the story would be otherwise. Because Death of a Salesman is a very male-heavy play. There are no major female characters other than Linda. Um, and even she doesn't get to speak very much. Um, like, in, in the scenes we've chosen, um, we, we chose the emotional high points of the play to um, show them rehearsing. And Linda barely gets a word in. I, I think we think of her as having her own words because she does have the big speech that ends the play. 
um, but notably that only happens after her husband has died um, and she is alone. So um, anyway, with, without this intervention, um, you'd have death of salesmen, very male heavy, um, Ying Cheng and Arthur Miller, both men. Um, it would just have been such a male heavy cast without um, going gender fluid with the casting. And also, I'm just interested in, in messing with the gender binary and having people play things that they are not, because you're always doing that. You're always playing a character who isn't really you, who has some differences um, with your true self. So why not take that a little further? Why do we decide that certain attributes must be the same and other things can be more fluid? Why not make it all fluid? Um, so that's been something that um, we've played with and I, I think has been has been rewarding um, because there's something very satisfying about seeing these um, um, ideas of American masculinity, particularly of seeing the construction of the figure of the football jock being represented by an Asian woman um, and making us very aware of how much of that is a performance. And and I guess because we have the play focuses a lot on the tensions about how Chinese actors will represent American characters, then then you're sort of adding this additional layer now of of that's not about ethnicity but about gender. That's sort so sort of layering the as you just described, um, which is which is really interesting. One of the one of the aspects that excited me a lot about this play. Um, I'm always really interested in sort of the use of archival materials in theater and especially when it feels like the archive is sort of being used, is sort of being animated in a way or sort of staging archival materials in a sense. Um, and you have some very cool moments, especially when we actually see scenes from this production staged, um, engages with the archive in a really exciting way. Uh, I'm curious how you went about deciding sort of what archival actual documents to feature in the production and, and sort of how that evolved in, in collaboration with your director and designers. Well, as, as a writer, um, I'm very prone to research rabbit holes. My method is to do way more research than I will ever need because it's also fascinating. And so having unearthed all of this material, um, I just thought we, sh we should use a lot of it um, because we are drawing from a true story and it felt like there were sources out there that people aren't really aware of. So why not just put them right in the play? But then how do we engage with it? So there are moments when our actors are lip syncing to archival recordings of performances. There are moments when they are performing but the Red E production is being projected onto them. Um, and in all of it, it's about the conversation that we're having with this event from the past. It's about how much of it do we want to make our own and how much of it do we want to put the original on stage, which echoes something that happened in the rehearsal room where Miller played the recording of the Broadway production to 
the, the Beijing actors and said, you don't understand the language, but try to pick up these rhythms, um, which is a scene in the play. So, you know, um, it's all out there. Um, you, you can actually see the 1983 Beijing production of Death of a Salesman in its entirety on YouTube. Like it is out in the world, anyone can watch it, but most people haven't. Um, and so we put a tiny sliver of it on stage in, in the hopes that more people will encounter it because frankly, it's amazing. Yeah, I actually watched a few minutes of it this morning. Um, mm. And obviously in the context of having just seen the play it was um, incredibly fascinating. And especially knowing sort of what stylistically and and I and uh, the the online program for the play also links to Renu's production of Thunderstorm, which was the same season, I guess. Um, and sort of the opportunity to sort of contrast the the performance styles and uh, mm -hmm. is really um, kind of an amazing resource, especially if if this if your play is sort of uh, an audience member's first sort of encounter with that conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, and, I, and on that yeah. point, oh, sorry. Um, okay. I, I was just going to say the other point um, that um, to make about that is that Ren E is a repertory company. So once they don't just do a production and they're done with it, this production of Death Salesman entered the repertoire and kept being performed for decades afterwards. Um, so the fact that we can still see these plays isn't just a matter of the archive. It's also about how they altered the DNA of the company because every production they did kind of uses the same actors, changes their performance style a little bit. Um, and all of these shows are in conversation with each other. So Thunderstorm and Salesman were there side by side using some of the same performers, but also they were in conversation. Um, and so now that's happening again on, on our stage, hopefully. Speaking of archival materials, I was shared a press script from August and I was looking for particular moments and I see a lot seems to have changed um over the last months of rehearsal potentially so i'm curious sort of what your approach to uh revision and rewriting was um across this rehearsal process um or in in recent months of developing the script oh well by nature i'm i'm an inveterate rewriter um i write and i over you know i write to discover something and then in the course of that discovery i realize i need to do something else and i go write that um so it's a constant process of evolution um, and, and the rehearsal process was a, a series of painful moments of being told we can no longer change that bit. The set has been built. Um, so I, I write because I'm always discovering new things. Um, and also because I'm very collaborative by nature. And when the cast would do a certain thing that would spark something that would affect the scene, um, that would make me realize that a certain moment was missing or conversely that we didn't need a certain other moment because it could go unsaid and was already present. Um, so it's been very fluid. And, and sometimes I look back at all drafts of this because, you know, I've been working on this for six years now um, and there are so many um, scenes that haven't made it in or that have made it back in in different forms that have come and gone. It, it's a shifting process, and I, I think you could, you know, it's like a flowing river. You could stick, get a sample at any moment, and it would be different. Um, and this happens to be the moment where we're staging it, so this is the version of the story you get. 
um, but ask me again in six months and I'll probably have a different one. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to now, but. (laughs) Um, I wanted to share another quote from Salesman in Beijing and get your response to it. Arthur Miller wrote, I am beginning to feel now that while the Chinese audience may empathize with Willie's feelings, a gap has to remain in its understanding of his very Western experience, his sense of individuality, and the mythology he carries in his head. On the other hand, what resonances escape us in Shakespeare's plays where innumerable political and social implications no longer have any life? So it's interesting to me that he is making this connection to Shakespeare, referencing kind of both the dimensions of sort of time and Shakespeare's plays are hundreds of years old. How can we access sort of what that audience resonance would have been, but then also sort of the cultural dimension uh, at the same same level. So I'm curious sort of what your thoughts are about that, both as a translator and, and, and as a playwright of this play. I mean, I, I think there's an unspoken anxiety in Arthur Miller's words, which is, in 1983, how relevant was this play that he had written in 1949? Um, and I think this was a question that was very present for him, because there was due to be a Broadway revival the following year. Um, and I cannot prove this, but I believe seeing how the play connected with Beijing audiences um, heartened him to go ahead with this production the following year with Dustin Hoffman that was in fact a big hit and showed that the play still had resonances but you know I don't think we need to go as far back as Shakespeare at all I I think we can just um I I saw the Broadway production of Death of Salesman last year and was struck by how the experiences of these characters were resonant in some ways and difficult access in others. So I think there's always going to be this gulf. And yet we reach across it and find what common ground we can. So just as the production happened because everyone involved in it found a place they could meet and tell the story together. So as audience members, you go in and at first, maybe certain aspects of the story are unfamiliar, but then you find the familiar and you find your way into the story that way. Um, and I I think for all of us, that's that's what theater is. You go into a space and you spend a bit of time orienting yourself and then suddenly you're there with them and you emerge changed because you've been somewhere new. I'm curious since you brought up the most recent Broadway revival, um, which of course reimagines the Loman family as a black family, um, whether you feel like the sort of cultural uh, specificity of the play is sort of intrinsic to who these characters are, or I, I when I was r- uh, right after I saw that play, I found an, a piece that Lorraine Hansberry wrote um, shortly after Raisin in the Sun opened, um, where she was writing very explicitly about the differences between Death of a Salesman and uh, and Walter Lee Younger between Willie Loman and Walter Lee Younger and saying that basically saying that that's about a that has to be a play about a white family this and and that the whiteness of death of a salesman is sort of intrinsic to what those people's experiences are in that moment in history so I'm curious sort of what your your take on that is well that's that's a big question that um the Chinese actors had that was never resolved um you know when when Death of a Salesman is staged in Beijing, 
are they playing white characters? Are they playing Chinese Americans? Um, are they playing people from China who happen to be in Brooklyn? And that's something that they never fully addressed and I think didn't have an answer to. Um, the the um, production on Broadway last year, I thought, asked a lot of questions um, about the whiteness of the play and what happens if the Lohman family isn't white. Does that change their experiences? Um, does it make a difference if the Lohman family is black, but Willie's mistress is white? Um, how does that, sh it, it, I don't think it was so much about um, challenging the text as inviting us to see it in a different way. Do we feel different about the story when there's a racial dimension to it? Um, does it open up new questions for us? And I, I, I think it did. It definitely made me see some aspects of the story in a different way, just as seeing this, the play transplanted to Beijing made me realize things about it that I hadn't before. Um, maybe what is most interesting in these reimaginations is the questioning of assumptions. Um, in the original, if, if we take the Lohman family as white, then Willie's idea that he and his sons deserve the best possible lives could be seen as a straightforward um, manifestation of the American dream. But if the family is Black, then there's a different history behind these sentiments. And, and what does that make us feel about their aspirations and their dreams and where they're coming from. Um, and then that, I think, freed me to think about what would happen when this play was on in China and, and how did they receive that in, in a country that had just come out of the Cultural Revolution that didn't had only just had um, free commerce restored, that was people were only just able to go into business for themselves. Um, what was that like? Was it alien? Was it aspirational? Um, but I, I think a, a good story is going to be resonant in different circumstances. It might be specific to its time, but it's also going to have bigger questions and messages and sentiments that are applicable in very different circumstances. And so I think by changing these big variables, you kind of lay bare what is underpinning a lot of the story. And sort of connected to that, there's a moment in the play uh, where Arthur Miller is complaining about how dim the lights are on stage and says, how do the audiences see anything? And the response is, perhaps they look harder. Uh, and I'm curious to just know sort of what you found most interesting in learning about how the how this play was received in China and, and what you wanted to highlight about Chinese theater goers and the Chinese culture of receiving art uh, in this production. That that is that partly I think draws from my own experience of being um, a non-US theater maker working in the US. Um, I find that I'm being asked to explain myself a lot. Um, people keep saying to me, we found this difficult to get into with the implication that I needed to explain it better. Um, but, you know, growing up in Singapore, I consumed a lot of American um, 
books and media and and um, so forth without fully understanding it. And I muddled through just fine. And the same was true in Beijing in 1983, where there had been very little access to the outside world and a lot of American culture in this play in particular were unfamiliar and yet people were able to find their way to it. People were deeply moved by it. The audience was sobbing um, and they had no idea what a salesman was. They had no idea what a mortgage was. At the end, when Linda is saying, we've finally paid off the mortgage, the audience has no idea what she's talking about. And yet they were able to share in her bittersweet triumph in that moment. So I I think um, perhaps in the US certain um, audience members are used to having the whole world laid bare for them, just as Arthur Miller had his road into China so paved that he felt he had fully been understood. Um, And perhaps it could be good to sit with incomprehension and try to make the effort of empathy that the unfamiliar requires. I have a couple questions left. Uh, I was thinking a lot about the idea of sort of translation as archive uh, and the sense that the acts of translation that you're depicting on stage are sort of historical historical translations, I guess, um, and you're sort of capturing a particular moment in time that that produced a specific interpretive translation um, that maybe couldn't have existed or wouldn't have emerged in any other moment or in any other context. Um, and there's a sense in the play that this sort of the performance of translation is historically meaningful and significant for all the reasons that you've talked about. Um, so I'm wondering if you can just speak to that and sort of how you went about sort of grounding your these moments of translation in this moment in history. Well, I, I think translations are always off their moment, just as performances are, right? That the Hamlet that is performed today is very different to the Hamlet that will be performed in 50 years. And the translation of the play that was produced in Beijing in 1983 is very different to a translation that would be produced now. And this was driven home to me because, you know, because I'm from Singapore and not China. I did um, ask a few people who were from China and had been there in the 80s to please read my script and make sure that um, the Chinese was reasonably Beijingese, that that, there was nothing egregiously non-Beijing. Um, and a surprising number of people picked up on elements from Ying Ruocheng's translation and said, this seems weird to me. And I had to say, no, well, Ying Ruocheng translated Death of a Salesman and specifically used a very 1980s Beijing dialect. He wanted his translation to feel very much from that moment. Um, and, and people in Beijing now are looking at it going, that seems weird. And I this is how people were speaking in the 80s, apparently. Um, so I, I, I think um, translations are such a time capsule. And Ying Ruocheng really leaned into using a language that maybe wouldn't stand the test of time, as it were. But then arguably, nor did Arthur Miller. I think Arthur Miller's English is very resonant of the era he wrote it in. Ying Ruocheng's Chinese translation is similarly and this play I've written 
you know, draws from the language of today with a reference to the 1980s. Um, and sometimes it's about finding the middle ground um, between that. I, I read an interview with the costume designer of Pretty Woman, the Broadway musical, where they said they couldn't straight up use 80s fashions because those would look sort of ludicrous to modern eyes. <laughs> kind of find things that referenced 80s fashion, right. but still read as beautiful to us. And I think I was trying to do something similar with my language, where it's like, okay, it's got to be 80s, but it's not going to be stereotypically or, or comically 80s. It's just going to make you feel like the 80s. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think everything we do is going to be of our era, because how could it not be? We are of our era and we can't not be. And you can only shift your own perspective and your own voice so much. I think my last question then is uh, very specific. Uh, in the play, Arthur Miller refuses to read Shen Weiwei's dissertation on his work uh, because he says he doesn't read anything that he that's written about himself. Um, I'm curious if you've read her dissertation or, or what she shared with you about uh, that re that research that she did. Yeah, I have, and and it is um, very much about the gap in perspective um, between you know, how an American would consume these plays and the Chinese perspective, um, which is an outsider's one. Um, so she understands um, Death of a Salesman and the Crucible very well, um, but she also sees them a little differently to the way Americans do. She sees them maybe more as, I guess, a learning opportunity for her about America, is that, oh, this is how things are. And... Um, it, it was really interesting because I don't know that she feels the same now. I don't know if she feels the same now that she spends so much time in North America. So for me, it functioned as a, the, the dissertation functioned as a way for me to learn about who she was back then. Um, this person who had studied American literature, had read so much of it, spoke fluent English, but had never left China and how she saw this world from the outside and was so fascinated by it. And I think that's what really comes across um, on the page, just her, the, the sheer effort that it has taken her to understand the world of death of a salesman um, in a way that I, I think a US reader would take for granted. So that that was quite moving. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that still exists and she had. <laughs> dig for it because you know it was it was in print it wasn't online anywhere she was like i will have to dig this up for right you. <laughs> yeah, it was great um well thank you so much for for bringing her story to light and to the stage and, and thank you for this play and for taking the time to speak with me today thank you for having me dan um it, it's been great talking to you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Present Stage Conversations with Theatre Writers. We have new episodes streaming every Friday, so tune back in next week. Some more exciting conversations. We have some really great ones lined up for the coming weeks. And if you like what you heard today, please follow at the Present Stage on Instagram. Leave a review. Give us a five-star rating. Most importantly, share with a friend who might enjoy and keep enjoying that theater going. <laughs>